0: I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Justice Samuel Alito. Alito is a reliable member of the court's conservative majority, but his judicial philosophy is hard to pin down. Though he is willing to use conservative tools like originalism and textualism to reach his desired conclusions, a survey of Alito's jurisprudence shows a much more idiosyncratic approach to legal analysis, which sometimes puts him to the right of even his most conservative colleagues. The only thing that's consistent about Alito is his steadfast commitment to his ideology and his disdain for those who don't share it. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have torn apart our civil liberties like our cats have torn apart the arms of our couches. Mm. I am Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon.
2: Hi. I want a cat. Do you? I do. I do.
1: You go to West Elm and you think you're treating yourself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then the cat has other plans.
0: We don't have a cat, but my dog chewed a hole in our bed frame. And so mm-hmm. now it's in the guest bedroom. Yeah. yeah it's like right behind me. I don't know. For
2: me to stay on when I come. Yeah. I'll know. Big hole
0: right there. Like Charlie <laughs> chewing it while we were sleeping. We woke up at 2 a.m. to this. <coughs> and we're like, what the fuck is that?
1: There's a weird thing with pets where like... At some point you end up having to downgrade a bunch of the things in your life because Mm -hmm. they just keep destroying it. Right. Right. And you're just living like a college student, like here's my shitty couch. (laughs) Well, we're like
0: we're talking about making changes to the house and one of them is like we're like we want to put doors in certain rooms so we can like we can just put nice stuff in there and then just close the doors Mm -hmm. and then the dogs can't go in and that'll be the room that they can't go into. Adding doors to my house so that I can have nice things.
1: Forced carpentry, yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the
0: wonders of pet ownership, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: The things we do for just a small amount of affection from a little creature that barely understands what's happening at any given moment. <laughs> this week's premium episode is a deep dive into Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Justice Alito is, of course, the first Supreme Court Justice to be summoned to existence by a dark witch rather than emerge from a human womb. (laughs) While scientists and priests inquire into that matter, uh, we will be diving into his career and his somewhat anomalous legal philosophy, which does not quite align with any of his contemporaries. Mm -hmm. We will also be looking at his public presence, which has become increasingly acrimonious over the last couple of years, as he has directed various bitter comments towards his colleagues and critics And we will be answering the question that is lingering in the back of everyone's minds. Is Sam Alito an oddball conservative intellectual with a unique but coherent legal perspective, or is he just an asshole?
0: (laughs) I think
2: I know the answer. Yeah, I have thoughts.
1: Don't spoil it. <laughs> all right, Rhiannon. I will. I will let you. I will let you tell me about a young Samolito, perhaps.
2: Yeah. All right. Can I just say that prep for this was extremely difficult and depressing, and mm. like I fucking hated today <laughs> as I prepped for this.
0: I'll say. I was thinking about this because it's like, it wasn't even the reading that was miserable. Although the reading was miserable because I read a fair amount from and about Sam Alito, but it was like, I realized that like, we go into these episodes and I'm like, I wanna give our listeners a clear picture of who this person is. And I would never really thought about that. I'd never been like, who is Sam Alito? Yeah. I try not to think about Sam Alito. Right. And I've spent the last week being like, what's his deal, yeah. right? And it's a far too much time thinking about like one of the worst pieces of shit on Earth.
2: Yeah, it, it was a dark fucking journey.
0: <laughs> Ruminating. On Sam Alito, like trying to know Sam Alito is an unpleasant task. Mm -hmm. I
2: mean, you guys saw I already inhaled it. I brought a cookie into my closet as a treat (laughs) for just sitting here and talking about this dipshit. So let's let's go. And one time I was writing something for Balls and Strikes and Jay Willis told me, like, don't tell readers that what you're about to say is boring because then you're telling them to, like, check out. Right. Right. And I get that, but also this life (laughs) that I'm about to tell y'all about is one of the most boring things you've ever heard. Um, So this fucking ghoul was born in Trenton, New Jersey on April 1st, 1950. That makes him an Aries sun, a Virgo moon, just absolute chaos. Um, You should
0: know that. As we all know. (laughs) Right.
2: Um, He was raised in New Jersey in an Italian-American family. His dad actually was an Italian immigrant. And his parents were teachers. But eventually, his dad got a graduate degree a little bit later in his life. And he became the director of the New Jersey Office of Legislative Services, which is a position that he held for more than like 30 years.
1: That leads to uh, an interesting anecdote. And this is from a Times piece from around the time of Alito's confirmation to the Supreme Court. Alito was pressed about uh, why he had once disagreed with the Warren court decision that established the one person, one vote standard for state districts. And he recalled the legacy of his father, who worked for three decades as the director of research for the New Jersey legislature, in his bedroom at night as a boy. Judge Alito told senators he could hear his father clicking away at a manual calculator as he struggled to redraw the state's (laughs) legislative districts with equal populations. (laughs) This is an incredible picture of a young Sam Alito being like, Dad, can we play catch? And his dad is like, no, the Warren court is forcing me to do redistricting, <laughs> uh, to make our elections more yeah. fair, and young Sam Alito is like, "Damn you, voting rights! I'll get you one day, voting rights." <laughs> exactly. So dumb.
0: Also, to complete the picture, you ca- your anecdote, right, describes it as a manual calculator. Mm-hmm. In another article I was reading, it described him lying in bed, listening to this clanking of a mechanical adding machine, mm. which makes it sound even more like, I don't know.
2: Like his dad was having to do this on a fucking abacus, you know, like it was just yes, such a fucking exactly, imposition. Right. God, I hate this fucking family. Anyways, (laughs) he graduated valedictorian in high school. Uh, He went to Princeton for college and he graduated summa cum laude in 1972 from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. His senior thesis, by the way, was about the Italian legal system, an introduction to the Mm -hmm. Italian constitutional Mm -hmm. court. One notable thing. During uh, Samuel Alita's time at Princeton, he was a member of a student group that opposed Princeton's decision to start admitting women. Mm -hmm. Later, he explained his participation was because the group also opposed that Princeton banned ROTC from campus. And that's why he joined the group. But. LOL, mm. like, come on. Mm. Right. <laughs> he also wrote in the yearbook at Princeton that he hoped to one day warm a seat on the Supreme Court. This is the most annoying person you've ever met in your life.
1: Creepy, creepy way to put it.
0: Yeah. And relating those two anecdotes, there was this Fox News guy, Andrew Napolitano, who said that there were two types of conservatives at Princeton. Those were the conservatives before Ronald Reagan, those who were conservatives after. And if you told Ed Meese, Reagan's hardline attorney general, you were a member of that organization, that told him you weren't a new arrival. It was a way of saying, mm-hmm. I'm the real thing. That's right. Right. This is sort of right. like the badge of authenticity that like, the federal society provides right. uh, conservative lawyers now. Yeah. Right. That's what he was doing at Princeton uh, way back in the day. Yeah.
1: Right. And he's like, you need to prove that you're a conservative asshole. To exactly. These people. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
2: That's really right. good point. So Sam Alito, he had been in ROTC on the Princeton campus. He did some active duty in 1975 after law school, blah, 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 blah. He went to Yale for law school and actually was a year behind Clarence Thomas. So he went to law school at the same time. Can you imagine being in law school with those two freaks?
0: No, thank you. <laughs> no.
2: After law school, turning to his <laughs> professional history and how he sort of comes up as a judge, he serves in many kind of judicial and also government roles before he is nominated to the Supreme Court. So after law school, he clerked for a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a federal appellate court which sits in Philly. And then from 79 to 81, he was a federal prosecutor in AUSA. At the U.S. Attorney's Office, he worked under Marianne Trump, who is Donald Trump's sister and was later nominated and confirmed to the Third Circuit as a judge. Sam Alito moved on to become Assistant U.S. Solicitor General, which ended up that he argued 12 cases in front of the Supreme Court. After four years in that role, he works for a few years as Deputy Assistant Attorney General. This is at the time that Edwin Meese is the AG. And in that role, Alito was in the Office of Legal Counsel. That's the office Mm -hmm. that advises the president on legal matters. And at this time, he is already talking about concerns that he has with Warren court decisions, right? Sort of civil rights era wins uh, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. racial minorities, women and the like that Sam Alito already has deep problems
1: with. I want to quote from an ABA journal piece about Alito that describes some of his work during this time uh, when he was working for the Solicitor General's office. He, quote, wrote a memo contending that police officers should have the right to shoot unarmed fleeing suspects. And then while he was at the Office of Legal Counsel, he backed a policy that said employers had a right to fire people with AIDS because of a fear of contagion, whether reasonable or not. So um, just out there doing inexplicable evil right off the bat, right out of laws. Exactly.
2: As soon as he's given the chance. Right. For a few years after his time as deputy assistant attorney general, he's the U.S. attorney for New Jersey. So the head prosecutor for federal crimes in New Jersey. And then in 1990, he's nominated by George Bush. The first, to a spot on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He was recommended, just a note here, he was recommended for that job by the Third Circuit judge who he clerked for, Leonard Garth, as hmm. well as Marianne Trump, who by that time was on the Third Circuit as a judge. He spends 15 years on the Third Circuit appellate court being very conservative and then is nominated to the Supreme Court by George W. Bush in 2005 when Sandra Day O'Connor announces her retirement. This is the same year of the Harriet Myers failed Supreme Court nomination. You can listen to our episode about Harriet Myers, which we did a couple months ago, but What happens is Sandra Day O'Connor announces her retirement and George W. Bush nominates John Roberts to that spot. But then the chief justice, William Rehnquist, dies. So George W. Bush withdraws the nomination for John Roberts and re-nominates John Roberts for the chief justice spot. Then Samuel Alito gets nominated for the Sandra Day O'Connor seat. John Kerry tried to filibuster Alito's confirmation, but that failed. And Alito was confirmed 58 to 42. And we should note that at the time for the court that Alito was joining, that was the second lowest confirmation vote among the justices sitting on the court at that time. Uh, That's only after Clarence Thomas, who was something like 52, 48.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And who had been credibly accused of sexual harassment. That's right. Right. People were just like, we don't like his vibes, though, for Alito. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This guy
1: sucks. (laughs) Well, he's Italian, which is a presumption of sexual harassment. (laughs) Uh, We should talk about his key cases in jurisprudence. And Mm -hmm. there are some interesting ones. And for these, you know, we tried to think like what, what separates Alito out from the other conservatives. And so we took a close look for a lot of these at like the 8 to 1 cases where he was the only dissenter, right? I I had this thing in my mind throughout this that was like if there's a case where he disagrees with Clarence Thomas, I would like to look into that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that yeah. was that was sort of looming large in my mind. I mean, Michael, I think I'll let you start off with abortion rights, which is maybe the sort of most obvious place where Alito's had some recent influence.
0: Yes. So we actually want to start when he was on the Third Circuit, he heard the case Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which would go up to the Supreme Court as potentially a vehicle for overturning Roe v. Wade and instead sort of affirm a narrower version of the right to abortion in a divided court. We spoke about Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, You should listen to our Roe v. Wade two-parter, where we go through all the history of that and, you know, that whole line of cases. But so he was on the appeals court uh, before that made it to the Supreme Court. And it's interesting because he wrote this concurrence, very technical concurrence, where he's talking a lot about the tests that the Supreme Court has laid out and like their 2 prong tests and how to apply these different prongs and and all these things. But basically because he thought that uh, (laughs) he wanted a spousal consent rule to be ruled constitutional, which is a law saying that in order for someone to get an abortion, it would require their significant other to consent to the abortion. So this is an extremely regressive opinion that uh is viewing the burden on women of having to get their spouse's consent in what are often, you know, very dangerous and unhealthy dynamics. Yeah. You know, he's shrugging it off like it's like it's nothing. And then of course he wrote the opinion overturning Roe v. Wade just a few months ago in the infamous Dobbs case, but reiterating like what's remarkable about that opinion, I think is sort of how unremarkable it is, how much it's just sort of regurgitating the same tired arguments that have been kicking around Mm -hmm. the right wing for decades. This is someone who looked at 50 years of legal precedent and established practice in the States and was ready to upend it all and didn't even think it needed like any real effort at like convincing people something changed. Yeah. Literally just like, look, we've been saying this and now we have the power to do it and we're right. We it.
2: have the votes for it now. We so. have the votes.
0: Incredibly hubristic, I think. Right. Yeah. And so I think what you can see in these both these cases actually is, you know, a little bit of an evolution from someone when he is still on a lower court and maybe striving towards a supreme court seat is being very narrow very technical but still pushing a very regressive religious point of view yeah to someone who is really feeling it uh, when he's feels like he's in charge now right right? and doesn't have to even pretend with the formalities here yeah Mm -hmm. it's just recycling you know Fox News talking points. Right.
1: So if you're trying to figure out the ways in which Alito is not really a bog standard conservative on the Supreme Court, one of the simplest ways is to look at free speech cases because he's had sort of a trail of odd dissents. There was a case called Snyder v. Phelps back in 2011. This was about the Westboro Baptist Church, the infamous little fundamentalist Christian family that liked to run around with... Intentionally offensive protest signs that said uh, "God hates fags" and "God hates soldiers" and things like that.
0: Right, right. And Going to their funerals and protesting. Their right, funerals.
1: they were going to the funerals of American soldiers, protesting with signs that were like, you know, "God loves dead soldiers" or some some shit like that. You know, just mm-hmm. the kind of signs that uh, would be upsetting to everyone who read them, right, mm-hmm. across the political spectrum. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So they get sued for it. Now, in this case, they're not exactly at the funeral, but they're close by. The soldier's family sues. And the question is whether they had a First Amendment right to be there. And the court said yes, even though it's hurtful and cruel speech, it's protected speech. And that was an eight to one decision. And the basic line of argument was like, look, they weren't actually disrupting the funeral, which could maybe results in a a valid lawsuit. They were just sort of off to the side, voicing their opinion. And even if their opinion is horrific, that is what the First Amendment protects. And that's Mm -hmm. why you get eight votes for these psychos, right? But Alito dissents. And he basically says, look, this speech is so offensive and cruel that it's not protected, which is sort of an interesting... Angle to take, right? To basically say, no, there's a limit to how offensive your speech can be, even right. if it's like clearly sort of political speech, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. that speech was. There was another 8 to 1 case, U.S. v. Stevens, where the issue was whether a law against footage of animal cruelty was too broad. There was this law that prohibited footage of animal cruelty, but it was written broadly enough that it would include, for example, footage of legal hunting or footage of certain livestock farms, for example. So the court found in another eight to one decision that the law was a First Amendment violation because it was too broad. And there, too, Alito is the lone dissent arguing that the law should stand. And there are a couple of takeaways from this. One is that Alito just sort of has a puritanical streak where he believes that the government has a relatively broad right to censor vulgar and offensive speech. That's a position you sort of don't see much anymore, but was popular among older school conservatives like Robert Bork. Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely, yeah. You
1: know, I think a lot of people basically view it as too much of a slippery slope, right? Sure, we'd all mm-hmm. love if Westboro Baptist Church couldn't do it. But then if the government is allowed to ban whatever speech they find offensive, it becomes difficult to manage, right? And that's why it's aggressively protected. But there are some older school, moralistic conservatives who have always Mm -hmm. felt like the government should be able to ban that sort of speech.
0: Yeah. Alito is like, it's not hard to figure out at all. It's not a slippery slope. It's just, do I think it's offensive? And I think that's the other takeaway is that his
1: conclusions are driven by his own personal sense of moral outrage, right? Yes, He right. believes the Westboro Baptist Church is doing very offensive shit, and his sense of what is or is not acceptable censorship is dictated in large part by what he personally believes is offensive, and that's sort of his mm-hmm. bottom line there. It's definitely his sort of most anomalous line of cases in terms of his deviation from the other conservatives, and yeah, it's sort of just him being like, no, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: he's also I think a bit of an animal lover actually, which mm-hmm. is maybe like the only nice thing I'll say about him on the podcast. Uh he's talked about um in interviews like you know, having his dog in the room when he's deciding hard cases and laying them out in front of him and seeing which one the dog picks and stuff. Mm-hmm. He clearly
1: Well, it's a common uh, trait among sociopaths who displace their emotions towards human beings onto animals, famously depicted in The Sopranos. That's right.
0: (laughs) So the other thing is, like, I'm not a big free speech guy. And so I'm not too far off from Alito on some of these opinions, although I don't like necessarily agree with his just sort of like, well, I'm the final arbiter of what's what is and isn't too offensive, right? Like, I know what the line is. I don't know that he's necessarily wrong on some of this stuff, but. At the same time, it's clear it's not like principled on Mm -hmm. his part, right? Because like you look in other speech contexts and he embraces all the free speech, libertarian ideals when it comes to money and politics, right? Right. He's signing on to Citizens United. He wrote a concurrence in uh, Americans for Prosperity v. Bonta, a case out of California about disclosure laws relating to charitable organizations that also donate to political campaigns, and uh, there, all of a sudden, you know, Alito is very big on all of the common free speech rhetoric. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, it's it, there isn't like a real intellectual through line here beyond like, yeah, my buddy should be able to spend whatever they want on politics. They shouldn't have to face any backlash for it. And I shouldn't have to see things I think are gross or nasty. Yeah.
1: I mean, keep in mind in Citizens United, the majority opinion that Alito signed on to had a line that said, there is no such thing as too much speech. Right. Right. If you believe right. that, you can't believe that Westboro Baptist Church is being too offensive, right, and uh, right. can have their signs banned or whatever. Right.
2: And moving on to criminal defendants' rights, the Fourth Amendment, Alito is extremely pro-pig, pro-law enforcement in these situations, Mm -hmm. highly likely that this is a holdover from his days as a prosecutor, right? Mm -hmm. Although, of course, being anti-criminal defendants' is definitely a conservative thing. But in some cases, Alito is even more conservative than the conservatives on these issues specifically. There was a 2018 case called Collins v. Virginia, where the decision, again, was eight to one and Alito was the one, the lone dissenter here. The case has to do with limitations on what police officers can search without a warrant. The Fourth Amendment requires that police have a warrant to search your house. And the Supreme Court has said that that includes the area around your house. It's known legally as the curtilage. This would be, for example, like your driveway, your front yard. If you imagine a, a sort of typical suburban residential street, if people had a fence around their front yard, right, that would, that would kind of draw a line around the curtilage. In this case, a motorcycle driver had gotten away from police and police tracked the driver down to a house where he sometimes stayed. The motorcycle was in the driveway and it was underneath a tarp. Police came onto the property. They do not have a warrant. They walked up the driveway. They pulled the tarp down, and they got the license plate number on the motorcycle. This is a search. This is a search under the Fourth Amendment, right? right? Mm -hmm. Eight justices think that this is clearly unconstitutional. Alito says, hold my beer. I have a cuckoo bananas thing to cry about here. In his lone dissent, he says, quote, it has been well established that officers do not need a warrant to search a motor vehicle on public streets so long as they have probable cause. Andy says that police officers don't need to get a warrant to search things that are in plain view from the street. <laughs> this is a transparent misstatement of what's at issue here.
1: All right, they had to is... lift a tarp, so it's not plain <laughs> view.
0: And that's a cross onto somebody's property. Exactly. <laughs>
2: this is not a motor vehicle on a public street. It was under a tarp in a home's driveway, and nothing was in plain view because if it was, then the police wouldn't have entered the property and searched,
1: right? I like how it gets right. every aspect of it. it uh, completely wrong. Correct. Exactly. Look, the law on public streets and plain view says this, and if you squint hard enough, <laughs> You could pretend that that's the law for driveways and things that are hidden under tarps, right?
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So Alito is thankfully by the grace of God in the dissent here. But this is extremely concerning for a now even more conservative court, right, than the one that we had in 2018 and a far more conservative federal judiciary as a whole. You know, it's just more power for police to infringe on the daily lives of people in their own private yeah. spaces. This is what Alito is fine
1: with. Yeah, his sympathies are very yeah. poor sign, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, it means that uh, pig. It's you know, like bovine oh, is cow. P O R C I N E. Yeah.
2: Oh, oh, okay, okay. I thought it was two words. P O O R, poor sign. S I G N.
1: No,
2: no, no. Okay. (laughs) Sorry.
1: I feel Uh like I'm going to start using the term porcine on the podcast because casual listeners who are sympathetic to cops won't know what I'm saying. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. he can just (laughs) glide under the radar with. Uh Yeah. There you go.
2: Fuck the porcine agents of the state.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You will never guess what sort of sentiments porcine elito has about immigrants. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> he doesn't like him. You, you, you wouldn't believe it. So this comes out, I think in this case, Pereira v. Sessions. Immigration law is super technical and I don't want to get like too into detail here, but this relates to a rule where even if somebody has been in the United States like overstaying a visa or undocumented, if they've been continuously in the United States for 10 years... And then the government tries to remove them. They have an opportunity to essentially, you know, not get deported, cancellation Mm -hmm. of removal. But that 10 years is interrupted. That time no longer counts if the United States serves that immigrant with a notice, basically saying, show up to court. Here's your court time. Here's where it's going to be about your status because we're going to kick you out of the country right this is all statutory this is a law right this is a law that's been passed some point in time in the late 90s you know the predecessor to the dhs issued a memorandum basically saying look you don't have to include the time of the hearing or even you know the place of the hearing on this notice if it's not practicable and then they just stopped doing that a lot (laughs) and started just handing people notices being like yeah See you in court, <laughs> basically. Uh, We're going to kick you out of the country. Be sure to show up to court. When? Where?
2: We're not telling you. We're not telling you.
0: <laughs> that's that's a little too much to ask of us. Thank you very much. And so this guy, uh, Pereira, you know, he gets picked up for a DUI six years into overstaying his visa. He gets one of these notices. It doesn't have a date or time on it. So he never goes to court and stays in the US for several more years and then gets picked up for another minor traffic infraction. And they're like, all right, we're gonna kick you out now. And he argues, no, I've been in the country for 10 years continuously. And the, the question is whether we've complied with the law here and given him a notice that has the time and place of a hearing if we've given him a notice that doesn't have a time and place of a hearing on it. This should be a pretty simple question Right.
1: Yeah. He didn't receive a notice with the time and place of a hearing. It's cut and dry. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Which is why it was eight to one in favor of Pereira. (laughs) (laughs) But you will never believe who is in dissent is Samuel Alito. Like we need to be able to kick this guy out of the country. And he rests it entirely on this like administrative law idea that when statutes are ambiguous, you can defer to the reasonable interpretation of the agency involved
1: mm-hmm. Chevron deference
0: that's right, a case involving Chevron. this is pretty ridiculous because, as I just explained, the statute is far from ambiguous. It's such a ridiculous thing to like invoke here for two reasons. one because the statute is not ambiguous like at all, right like it's very clear you need to provide notice with the date and time of a hearing right. and two. Because this opinion came out at the same time that conservatives are like, they want to get rid of Chevron Deference. Yeah,
2: they hate this case. Right.
0: It's part of their project. We talk about like the major questions doctrine, and, and we've definitely talked about that on a few episodes now, which is all about... Like the opposite, which is not only not deferring to agencies, it's like not even, not even deferring to Congress, right? right? It's like seizing control of the uh, meaning of congressional statutes and administrative law for the courts. So there's just something very, I mean, it's just so bad faith, right?
1: And it's it's one of those, you know, like I was saying, like when you're looking at a case like that, you're like, wait, why isn't Clarence Thomas joining that side? Right. Or why isn't Neil Gorsuch joining that side? And the reason is because he's endorsing a case that they like have expressly said they want to overturn. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) They're not going to jump onto that because they have this broader ideological project in mind. But I think something we're going to talk about a little more in a minute is. Alito sees his destination and just takes the Mm -hmm. fastest route there, right? Exactly. He doesn't concern himself with a broader ideological project. You just take what's in front of you, grab it, and that's it.
0: Yeah, whether it's Chevron deference or textualism, originalism, or whatever, they're tools. He uses them to gain advantage, but he does not care about them at
1: all. So I think last sort of like line of jurisprudence we'll talk about is his religious liberty cases. Frankly, he's not that much of a deviation from the other conservatives on this, but it's very important to him. So we want to talk about it a bit. He wrote The Majority in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. We did an episode on that where he held that private companies can deny birth control coverage to employees on religious grounds. He's been aligned with the farthest right contingent of the court on these issues. He's been a leading advocate of overturning Employment Division v. Smith, which would forbid the government from passing laws that infringe on religious practice, even if those laws are neutral on their face and apply to everyone equally, which at the end of the day just means religious people would often get carve-outs from laws that apply to everyone else, notably anti-discrimination laws, for instance. Yeah. He has spoken publicly and consistently about religious liberty. Just this year, he spoke at the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Institute Summit in Rome. Don't know why it's there. I mean, I do, but it still freaks me out a little bit. (laughs) He did that sort of like equivocation there where he listed off like oppressed religions worldwide to support the idea that like religion is under assault. Right. Did he talk about Muslims? Sort of. He mentions Uyghurs in China, who are, of course, predominantly Muslim. He also mentions the Hindu-Muslim conflicts in South Asia, uh, attacks on Jews in Israel, attacks on Coptic churches in Egypt, and attacks on the Yazidi people by ISIS. Not to nitpick, but several of these are probably better described as conflicts between religions, rather than, like, attacks on religion, but whatever. Mm -hmm. So he's basically saying, yeah, you know, the Yazidi people are being killed by ISIS and salespeople in Cincinnati can't say fudge packer at client dinners anymore. uh, And these are the things that I believe (laughs) uh, show that religion is under assault across the world. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is that, like, in America, the practice of religion is just as, if not more legally protected than it's been in modern history except in one specific way, which is the ability of religious people to discriminate against minorities in public life on the basis of their religion, Mm. right? Exactly. This is an area where I think like many others, Alito's basic grievance is essentially just lifted from conservative media, right? Like... There's a very real sense in which religion is less popular and less culturally relevant than it has been in the past. And that gets laundered into like a much more seemingly nuanced sounding grievance about religious liberty when it's really just a complaint about like the wane of religion and of Christianity in particular as a cultural force in American life. Mm -hmm. Now Leto's very clearly upset about that. And so he speaks about it often and talks about religious liberty being under assault even though, if anything, the dial's moving in the other direction because conservatives control the court.
2: Yeah, exactly. The Religious Liberty Summit in Rome is also the first time that Alito sported a beard in public. Mm. Terrible Mm. beard. Looks like shit.
1: No, I agree. It doesn't look good. It looks (laughs) stupid.
2: No, it doesn't look good.
1: (laughs) So, you know, we were sort of hinting at his interpretive philosophy. And he's really not associated with a particular philosophy in the way that many other justices are. He loosely adheres to originalism and textualism and other conservative doctrines at times when they're useful, but he's not very wedded to any of them. He once somewhat famously mocked originalist analysis in oral arguments by interjecting into a line of questioning by Scalia to ask whether James Madison liked video games. (laughs) (laughs) But then on the other hand, he used an originalist framework to overturn Roe v. Wade, right? Uh So he doesn't particularly care about these things, like Michael was saying, but when they're useful, he'll he'll deploy them to sort of get from point A to point B as quickly as he can, as efficiently as he can.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And so I think the picture that starts to emerge from these cases is someone who's like very righteous, right? And self-righteous. Yes. Who believes he's destined for great things and thinks he's destined to rule and there's no disconnect between what he thinks is right, what he thinks is moral, and what he thinks should be legal. Yeah. And he's in position, in his mind, to make that the reality, and it should be. He should use his power to do that. Right. And, and I think through that light, you can see him as like almost pragmatic or very functional. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when he's in the lower courts. He's doing these very technical analyses, still pushing his agenda, but like building up the resume you need to advance, right? He's joining the right clubs at Princeton and, and all that. But now that he is, you know, in charge, so to speak, he and Clarence Thomas, sort of the most senior members of the arch conservative bloc. He gets to do whatever he wants, right? Yeah. That's what that's what yeah. he thinks. Yeah. I also think you can see this in a case. This is an interesting case. It was 9-0, where he joined the liberals. So this was a case about GPS monitoring. Cops attaching a GPS device to a suspect's car without a warrant. This was a practice that was very common. A number of lower courts had basically uh, weighed in on this and found that under existing Supreme Court precedent, this was legal, that attaching a GPS device to a car did not require a warrant because it wasn't a search, because you're just following them around on public roads, and that's something cops could just do, right? They could just follow someone, they don't need a warrant, and track their movement. And so you're collecting the same information, it's not private information, therefore it's not a search under the Fourth Amendment. So this goes up to the court, and obviously all the justices are uncomfortable with this level of power in the police state, maybe because they can imagine themselves one day being the targets of a vindictive executive branch and don't want their movements tracked. I I don't know. So the decision is 9-0, but the conservatives want to base it on property rights. They want to take this back (laughs) to like literally like tort law from the 1790s about like, well, this would be a trespass, and so that would be a search mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. under the founders' understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And three of the liberals—Kagan, Breyer, and Ginsburg—join Alito, and Alito writes a concurrence saying, "Like, look, we're, you know, it's not a dissent because we all agree this requires a warrant. It's a search under the Fourth Amendment." But he has this much more modern view, and he pokes fun at the majority for taking this the ridiculous position about like trespass to shadow and uh, Mm a very outdated idea. Like, you know, he's like, this is the 21st century. This is like massive surveillance, right? Like we're talking about surveilling someone for 28 days electronically tracking every one of their movements. Like the idea that the founders have anything to say about that is just nonsense. Um, And instead he wants to take this more progressive position about your movements in public and, the sort of information that can be gathered from that, that maybe you can't gather from everyday surveillance. I think it goes to this idea that he's like, he doesn't care about the ideological project in a legal sense, right? He has his morals, he's a partisan, and he's certainly an ideologue, but his, his ideology is far more about like sort of Catholic and evangelical morality.
1: Yeah. There's a way in which a lot of the conservative legal movement has sort of created this parallel ideological structure that exists to bolster the political ideological structure. Right. But it's still separate in a way, right? Right. So you'll get occasional disconnects and areas where there's tension and so if you're principled enough, you might see one of those free speech cases as Clarence Thomas or Scalia and be like, even though I hate this, I'm going to apply the legal ideology right. because that's what I'm here to do. Whereas Alito is like, well, what's the point? Right. <laughs> right. Right? The legal ideological framework is meant to support the political one. So fuck it. Why don't we just ignore the legal one? Right. What's, right. The legal one is just a vocabulary right? yeah. to right. a- allow us to talk about the political one in a way that seems a little bit more palatable. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And
2: and note the dissonance, the disconnect, right? Because on other Fourth Amendment issues, he's bad. He is awful. Mm -hmm. In Clapper v. Amnesty International, which we did an episode about very early on, Alito is in the majority, right? Saying this kind of NSA mass surveillance is fine. Well,
0: that's when it's the nasty fake news media that's That's right. We want to monitor enemies of the state.
2: (laughs) And another thing that Alito is known for, which kind of goes with this kind of lack of adherence to a jurisprudential ideology, is he's known when he is concurring in the judgment of a case or when he is in dissent, he's known for super long opinions, Mm -hmm. pages and pages, often longer than what the majority opinion is.
0: Yeah, uh, he gets big mad sometimes. (laughs) And uh, when he's mad, the dissents can get very long. Yeah.
1: And it's very, Michael, I mean, you were talking about his sort of like self-righteousness. And this is the output of it, right? That he's just like, he's so mad at the court disagreeing with him that he just has to rage.
2: Yeah.
0: Right, exactly. It's like someone who like has to get the last word in and has to be right. And a particularly vivid example is like we covered a Title VII case, uh, Bostock v. Clayton County, where he was in... Uh, the dissent. This was about trans rights in the workplace. And it was like the majority opinion was like 30 pages, and his dissent was over 100 pages and right. it had four appendices. <laughs> just like, big just could mad. not stop.
2: Just big mad. Big mad in the pages of the Supreme Court reporter. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is a politics that is centered on anger. Yeah. Right. Yes. What What makes me mad? What do I not like? how do I feel attacked by this, right? It's a defensive mm-hmm. posture all the time, even when he's in the majority.
1: Yeah, and that's the way in which it really mirrors the broader conservative political movement, right? And yes. We've sort of said on the show that he's got Fox News brain, right? What is conservative media doing at any given time? They're fostering outrage, exactly. right? And if you're yeah. plugged into that one way or another, your politics exist as an expression of frustration at what you perceive to be liberal bullshit happening all around you, right? right. And right. that's what makes Alito mad too. That's why he writes these incredibly long dissents and concurrences because he his politics are an angry politics, an indignant politics, right? He's, he's yes. outraged all the fucking time.
2: Yeah, by definition, reactionary.
1: Right.
0: You know, we've said he has Fox News brain, and I think that's an accurate statement. But I do wonder, like— He legit might be one of those people who's like, Fox has gone too lib. I I watch Newsmax and OAN. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So on the note of his indignance, we should probably talk about his storied history of public whining, and we can kick it off with maybe the most famous public outburst from Sam Alito at the 2010 State of the Union Address by then-President Barack Obama, very shortly after Citizens United dropped. uh, Obama said, quote, Last week, the Supreme Court reversed a century of law to open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. And the camera then panned to the Supreme Court justices, of course, who are supposed to sit there stone-faced. Yeah, they wear robes. And instead... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sam Alito looks visibly angry, grimaces, shakes his head a little, and mouths the words, not true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Incredible for a couple of reasons. First of all, like, your only job at this, if you're the Supreme Court justices, is to not do anything at all. Right. (laughs) That's that's all you have to do is just sit there, and you're probably going to eat a little bit of shit, and that's how it goes. But he couldn't because— Like we've been saying, he is a man controlled by his rage. That's right. (laughs) There's no question about it. So it's sort of funny for the decorum breaking aspect. But it's also funny because Obama was saying something like unquestionably true. Objectively. Also, in terms of like politicians characterizing Supreme Court decisions. Just pretty downright accurate, right? Politicians yeah. frequently butcher the meaning, the holding of Supreme Court decisions. I wouldn't argue that they're good at framing it. They're trying to take advantage for political reasons.
2: Sure, they use hyperbole, whatever, right? But- right.
1: All that he said was they're opening the floodgates for special interests to spend without limit in our elections. And Alito said not true, <laughs> even though it is for sure true. 100%. Sure. <laughs> true.
0: <laughs> Obviously true then, even more true now. like right.
1: <laughs> Unquestionably true, and just a brief little glimpse into the the pure anger that controls Sam Alito.
2: Yeah, yeah, a little toddler yes. tantrum at the State of the mm-hmm. Union. Yeah, and the public whining from Sam Alito has maybe increased in the past couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like he's sort of on a grievance speaking tour. Most notably, I think in 2020, he speaks as like the keynote at the Federalist Society Convention. And it was... 2020, you know, COVID time. So this was a virtual event. He spoke by video and the whole thing is just dog shit stupid. He opened by telling people to feel free to throw tomatoes at him because.
1: Because he's not really there. They would
2: only be ruining their own computer screens. Huh? Huh? huh. god, This guy sucks so fucking bad. You know, it's conservative boomer humor and it's just awful to watch. The theme of his remarks at the FedSoc convention was basically that like two constitutional protections were becoming, quote, second class liberties. Listeners, can you guess what those two were? It's the First Amendment, free exercise of religion, and the Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms. Uh, Yay! mm, He talked about COVID restrictions on church gatherings as an example of, quote, the dominance of lawmaking by executive fiat rather than legislation. Mm. You know, side note, when Trump was issuing executive orders like a fucking assembly line horror factory, Alito did not have a fucking thing to say. You know, religious liberty, he said, is, quote, Fast becoming a disfavored right. The primary example he uses is a case written by Scalia in 1990. Peter, you mentioned it mm-hmm. earlier Employment Division v. Smith. So, fully 30 years ago, what are you right. talking like fast becoming a disfavored right? Like,
1: right. And by the way, that case is basically a nullity now. So, yeah. if that's the example that you're providing to show that like religious liberty is out of favor you have no example, right? That's all it is.
2: Right, that's exactly what that shows. He also says there's a culture of censorship around people exercising and expressing their religious beliefs, so much so that people, quote, can't say that a marriage is a union between one man and one woman.
1: Yeah, no one can say it anymore. Mm. Right. It's just one of those things where it's like, well, you know, you can't even speak your mind anymore. it's like, oh, which opinions was that, by the way?
2: Right. It's Mm -hmm. like, well,
1: hate gays, let's get that out of the way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to say the N word. Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly. Right. Can't say slurs about anyone anymore. Right. Again, this is just lifted from the lowest levels of conservative discourse.
2: That's right. That's right. He also said that senators who had submitted a brief to the court saying if they took up a certain guns rights case, it would show that the Supreme Court is captured by right wing moneyed interests. He said that that brief was bullying That the Supreme Court justices were being bullied and that the brief was an (laughs) affront to the Constitution and the rule of law.
1: We are talking
2: just the tiniest kindergarten brain here, okay? (laughs) Absolutely convinced by a perpetual victimhood persecution complex that he is losing when he actually has a chokehold on American government, one of the most fucking powerful people in the country. Shut the fuck up. This is the most annoying shit ever. He's
1: the pits. Yeah. You can really see with Alito in particular, but you see it across the sort of conservative politico spectrum As their power goes up, the whining about not having power goes up too. It's like this inexplicable correlation where the more powerful they get, the more justified they feel in their power and any challenge to it becomes less acceptable. Yeah.
0: I also want to talk about a talk he did last year, September 2021, about the shadow docket, which is something we've talked about on this podcast. He called the talk the emergency docket
1: Hmm. because he does not like the Uh, term. I prefer to call it the friendship docket. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs)
0: He said calling it the shadow docket is sinister. (laughs) It's sinister. (laughs) Uh, This is the docket that the court hears like emergency orders and stuff like that where a lot of it's done Without the formal process that most cases get.
2: Yeah, no oral argument.
0: Light briefing or no briefing. And oftentimes the orders don't even have decisions Uh uh, attached to them, like written opinion and things like that. So that's why people call it the shadow docket, because it's hard to tell what's going on. You don't even know who voted for what in a lot of these cases, like who dissented. And they won't always note their dissents and, and things like that. So this was getting a lot of coverage in the last few years because the court was making aggressive use of it, and then this all sort of came to a head last year, right around the time of this speech, because the court sort of infamously allowed Texas's anti-abortion bounty law to go into effect, and that was a shadow docket decision. Right. And one thing that struck me in reading this speech again, going through his emergency docket talk at Notre Dame is that also Alito is just like a shameless like liar. Like he's a total bullshit artist and, and will just, just lie. Right. Like he'll just straight up lie. And, and so in this case, he brings up the Texas case, the SB8 mm-hmm. abortion case, and dismisses criticism that had essentially overturned Roe v. Wade in Texas. And he says, like, look, our opinion specifically did not go to the merits of that. <laughs> there were sort of two flavors of this criticism. One was that Roe v. Wade was effectively overturned in Texas because now this law was in effect. And if you tried to get an abortion, you could be sued, right? And this made abortions basically illegal after six weeks or, or whatever. The other criticism was, look, the Supreme Court has accepted cert on this Dobbs case where they're gonna be hearing a challenge to Roe v. Wade. And if they had any interest in upholding Roe v. Wade, they would be putting a stop to this Texas law that clearly violates Roe v. Wade, right? Those are the two criticisms. Alito essentially dodges both of them by saying, well, we didn't reach the merits. Well, yeah, it doesn't matter because the Texas law is still in effect, which he knows, right? Right. Like he understands that. And also doesn't comment at all about, you know, the Dobbs case, which he knows they're planning on using to overturn Roe v. Wade. And this is consistent with like there was reporting just this week that he, during his confirmation hearing, was telling senators, telling Senator Kennedy, Roe v. Wade is settled law. And then comes out in the Dobbs opinion and says it's been wrongly decided, you know, and that's been clear. This is someone who knew what he wanted to do with this and actively hid that and misrepresented his intentions in front of the Senate, the American people, and even as recently as just last year at this hearing is trying to downplay the threat to Roe v. Wade because he knew it would be unpopular. Right.
1: And, you know, another lie that he's consistently told is that his hair is not gray <laughs> he's rocking one of the most obvious dye jobs i've ever seen yeah
2: you know when i first noticed it is when i saw his ugly fucking face at the phillies game on tv mm. he came up mm-hmm. on tv and i thought to myself who the fuck is that ghoul and then i thought to myself that is hair dye working so so hard yeah. on top of yeah. a ghoul on top yeah. of the head of a ghoul." yeah he's
1: got that thing you know when I mean, look, if you're fortunate, you get old and your body starts to fall apart. I get it, right? Like, you know, it's it's something that you sort of have to handle and we all handle sure. it with different differing amounts of grace. But there's something about the old person who's clearly very old and their skin's starting to sag and everything's sort of slowly falling apart. But their hair is just like jet black. It's like that's, <laughs> that's not how God works. And I, I know it, you know. <laughs> After v. Wade was overturned. He got into a sort of a weird public spat with Justice Kagan. Mm. Kagan made some public comments implying that the court was perhaps becoming too politically ideological, saying that when the court reflects one party's ideology too much, it erodes public confidence in the court. Alito responded to that, which is sort of unusual. Kagan was just sort of making a public comment, right. Alito responded to that to the press. Mm-hmm saying that the implication that the court was losing legitimacy, quote, crosses an important line. Feels notable because, like, first of all, Alito engages in public commentary all the time as we've been sort of going Mm -hmm. over more than your average justice, maybe more than any other on the court and is sort Mm. of like notoriously abrasive both in his opinions and in general, Uh, as far back as like 2013, there was reporting in the Washington Post that Alito repeatedly rolled his eyes when Justice Kagan was speaking. He's consistently snarky in oral argument, for example, Mm -hmm. but Kagan saying that the court reflecting a single political ideology might be bad is like a step too far. Like that crosses a line. What is the line? He really embodies a certain archetype where he's like very abrasive, very willing to aggressively criticize his opponents, but also extremely thin-skinned and defensive whenever he is criticized, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's definitely like a certain type of guy.
0: Yes, yes. An unbelievably entitled guy, right? Yeah. One more instance of Alito being a big baby in public is recently speaking at a Heritage Foundation event, which is a conservative think tank, He talked about the infamous release of the draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. And he criticized that saying it made the justices targets for assassination (laughs) because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent that from happening by killing one of us. This is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's all I mean, I don't mean this. To endorse assassination. But there's always like a reason. Like everyone knew they were potentially going to overturn Roe. The leak made it clear that it was happening. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that was like notably yeah. increasing the chances of one of them being assassinated, I don't, come on. It's just, just whiny shit. Right. Everyone found out that we were doing something incredibly unpopular that will ruin the lives of of people across this country, and that puts us in danger. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right usually we'd be able to just scurry home
0: two days later and not have to see the public for months. But in this case, we had to sit through months of threats, you know?
1: Yeah, just fucking shut the fuck up, dude. Alito right now is like on a burner account retweeting stories about how Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked by his gay lover. That's right. shut the fuck up, bro.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: All right. So I think we need to like wrap this up with uh, you know, our comprehensive theory of Sam Alito. Because mm-hmm. we've talked about him being a hack, and I think it's important to sort of drill down on what we mean. And one way to think about it is just what framework does Alito use for analyzing the law? What's his ideology, right? Clarence Thomas's ideology is very intertwined with his theory of the law, natural rights, the proper place of the Constitution in our social order. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is very wrapped up in his very rigid jurisprudential views. All of these men are reactionaries, and reactionary ideology stems from the same basic set of instincts. It stems from the desire to preserve certain social hierarchies. But they've each created different lenses for themselves, different frameworks for analyzing the world and justifying those instincts, justifying their political ideology. Thomas and Gorsuch have developed these academic philosophies to articulate their worldview. But Alito is just unfiltered reactionary impulse. He's the legal conservative id. Yeah. He does not pay too much mind to originalism or textualism or any other interpretive philosophy unless it feels useful, right? So you have Gorsuch and Thomas working their impulses through a legalistic framework, whereas Alito doesn't need to because he lacks the part of the brain that causes introspection and shame. Right. <laughs> and that, I think, is my bottom line on Justice Alito. I think That's right. All right. This was painful for us to prep, so we'll be taking uh, a year off.
2: <laughs> I'm struggling, bro. I'm going to go to sleep for like a week.
1: We will be back next week. Next week is Utah v. Strife, a case about whether police officers can make an unconstitutional stop, find an outstanding warrant, and then arrest you based on that warrant, even though the stop was unconstitutional. Hmm. wonder which way this one's going to go. Find out next week on 5 to (laughs) 4. Follow us on Twitter at 54 Pod. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon or wherever you support us. Hop over to the merch store if you want to support us further and get some sweet uh, merchandise that says Scalia is dead on it and, and things like that.
0: That's right. Or our iDescent design, once banned, now returned.
1: That's right. Uncensored, hashtag free speech.
0: <laughs> Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations.